Hey, welcome to You Had Me at Black. I'm Martina Abraham Zalunga. Today we'll hear from Dina, who had to learn to fill a new role in her family where her mom battled cancer. Here's what happened. I want you to breathe all this in. You're listening to You Had Me at Black. Black. Right in the heart of the city. Black. Man, listen, man. Black, black. This is You Had Me at Black, and we live, baby. My story begins when I get a phone call from my aunt, and she's saying my mom's getting emergency surgery. We're not panicking, it's a very dry, fast conversation. I knew my mom was getting some health tests. I didn't think anything was seriously wrong. I just thought she would change her lifestyle to become a little bit more healthier. So I'm saying, okay, I'm coming home. What room is she in? Like, where is she? So when I get there, I know where to go. And that's when she said she was in the cancer ward. And I'm thinking, okay, the cancer ward, something has to be wrong. And to be honest, I was kind of in a stage of being naive, thinking, okay, they'll take this out and everything will be okay. After the workday, I fly home. I see my mom, and she's already had the surgery. So when I walk in the room, my mom looks like herself. I'm like, okay, we're going to beat this. She looks normal. She looks healthy. Like, there's really not much to worry about yet. So a few days after the surgery, when she's able to be released to go home, we also see her doctor. So when we walk in the room, it's quiet, but there's an air of hopefulness. We're thinking that the doctor will come in and say, everything's fine. So the doctor arrives, my mom sits up on the table, and she says, Marilyn, you have stage four cancer but we're going to get through this. She explains to my mom, okay, we're going to do four chemo treatments and I'll be here when you do them. And after those four chemo treatments, hopefully everything is gone and we're going to get through this. So basically the doctor becomes part of the team too. So we have a fifth woman who's on the team ready to beat this thing. The only thing that we could do was we knew we had to take action So while we were all in disbelief, we still have this like unwavering hope. So next thing that happens, my mom gets her diagnosis and she gets her um, treatment plan. So during those treatments, we're just smiling and laughing and it's not having a good time, but being able to spend time together and get her through a period of time, which probably was scary for her even though she didn't want to show that on her face. She never cried about her diagnosis. She never got angry. She was just trying to live life the best that she could at that point. So after that, she takes her four chemo treatments. I'm able to be there for all four. And then we have another consulting about where her cancer is. And at that point, it was smaller, but there was still a mass that they wanted to kind of attack. The woman doctor has a rally with us, us being her team. And so we're all in a room 
and she has good news and bad news. She announces the good news is that there was less cancer seen within her scans. However, the bad news was there's one area where she wanted to really focus because she didn't like the size or the amount of cancer that was still in that particular area. Now, her suggestion was one surgery. Immediately, my mom said no. She didn't want to be cut open again. I don't know why. It's a weird philosophy in my family that they don't like to be cut open. In that moment, I was like, girl, just go and get this removed because at least you know if it's removed, it's out of your body. But my mom was very adamant about not having her body open again. And so I was a little disheartened that she wouldn't just have another surgery. But then again, I'm like, okay, this isn't my body and I don't know what she's feeling. But at the same time, I was like, okay, we're still going to beat this. Like, it doesn't matter what we do because we're still going to beat this. We're still fighting. It's not over. The second option was to do a new treatment that was basically a test treatment. And my mom was open to that, but she really didn't want to do that either. So from that point, she decided she wanted to get a second opinion. And so she actually decides she wants to go to the Cancer Treatment Center, and that's actually in Chicago. So basically, after her last treatment in Cleveland, she decides, I'm going to get the second opinion in Chicago. And so she comes up here and starts getting her second opinion. And at first, in the Chicago hospital, I felt, again, I felt hopeful. She had one of the top doctors in the Institute She, it seemed like the nurses were pretty decent, pretty nice, and it seemed like they knew what they were doing. After the first few treatments, the new doctor wanted to do this test treatment, just like the doctor in Cleveland. So my mom finally agrees, and so she does the test treatment. When she does the test treatment, it doesn't go anywhere as well as we planned. The treatment deteriorated her down to a person that I didn't even recognize. She could barely text. She barely wanted to talk. It just, it did not work. And no one had an answer or reason for why it didn't work. And this is when I noticed that her supposed to be amazing doctor is never really around. She's not really telling us anything. She's not leaving us notes for how things are progressing or not progressing. And so we're kind of in a limbo of what are we supposed to do? You know, if you're sick and you're at the hospital, you want someone to say, this is your diagnosis and this is what's going on. We're not getting any of that. We're just in the dark. So it's like you almost lose hope. And at that point, you just want to be around the people you love. After a few weeks, my mom keeps deteriorating. She's not able to really keep food down. She's very, like, eyes are yellow. She just doesn't look healthy. So we're just trying to decide what is our next steps going to be. One night, the ICU nurse comes in, nice lady. She always would give my mom attention and rub her hands and be friendly. And she asked her, Marilyn, how are you feeling today? And because at that point my mom was on machines, she couldn't always talk coherently. And so the nurse gave her a whiteboard. And at this point, my grandmother and I are in the room. My aunt's in Cleveland because she has to work. 
And so when she asked her how she doing, she wrote, I'm dying. I felt hopeless because here we are at this hospital. We're not even at home. Our family isn't here. And no one's really telling us facts. So at that point, I'm just like angry at the hospital. And I think I'm like visibly angry at that point where you're like, I'm just like, do not talk to me unless you have some facts. Don't try to be friendly because you really haven't been friendly this whole time. Like, I don't really have much to say to you unless you have some information that's going to be helpful to me. And I think my tipping point with that is after all of this, all of this is going on, my mom already knows she's dying. So the next thing we want to get her around people that love her and you know, can say goodbye. So we try to have her sent to another hospital, obviously in Cleveland. And child, we had to fight for a good four days for them to even let her be released from the hospital. There's no reason that they're telling us she can't be sent home. They're just saying no. And at this point, I'm thinking, they're just after her money in so many words. You just want this insurance money to keep her here because there's no other reason that you need her to stay in this particular hospital at this point. By the grace of God, I don't know what happened, but they say, okay, we will airlift her back to her original hospital. And so I know they're going to airlift her and send her back to Cleveland, which means I have to get myself together to go home and also explain to family members what's been going on this whole time because they're kind of in the dark because we're in the dark. We can't tell them what we don't know. Now, mind you, my grandmother is still here and she ain't getting on a flight. So we have to take the bus back, the Greyhound bus. (laughs) And so we have about a seven hour ride to just like think like, what are we going to do when we get to Cleveland? Because we need to have this plan and we need to hit the ground running. So we follow them behind them that night and get to Cleveland. And we get to the hospital and we sit with my mom and talk with her. And she's hooked up to breathing machines. And so she can't really fully talk. She can shake her head and communicate, but she, we can't hear her voice. And so the first thing we did is obviously call my family. So, you know, how it is with family, it's almost like you have a call tree. So you're calling certain people, you're explaining the situation, telling where they can visit. It was, it was overwhelming because usually my mom was the strong one who got everyone together and would always be like that middle piece that connected everyone. And now she can't be that. So it's like I had to step into that role that she was leaving, but she wasn't gone yet. My aunt, my grandmother, and I have a meeting with the doctor when they take us to the back she sits us down and she says you have two options you can keep her on these machines and yes she would probably live longer but it won't be good for her organs or you can take her off these machines when she's explaining it to us she's like acting like it's like oh she'll be happy and talking and you know we'll just see what happens after that so we're expecting the best when these machines are turned off When we turned the machines off, she never woke back up. There was no talking. There was no interaction. And I just never got to hear her voice again or see her eyes even open again. 
You're just waiting for that last breath. So we're in this room in the hospice, and my aunt and I stay in the room. My grandmother goes home. And it's about midnight or 11.59, and we notice we don't hear. When she was sleeping, you could hear, like, a rattle in her chest, and we realize we don't hear that rattling anymore. So in between us, like, getting ready for bed and dozing off for probably 45 minutes, she takes her last breath. Quietly, peacefully, but unfortunately on Mother's Day. It just took a while for me to even heal and to get to a place where I was okay. And I needed that time to figure that out and understand and learn what would make me heal and feel okay. I definitely took a lot of time to myself to understand kind of like what were my triggers. So you'd think you don't have any triggers, but when you go through a situation like that, anything you look at could trigger an emotion, a reaction, a memory. And how to be okay with accepting that's a memory and it's a good thing, and you don't have to feel ashamed for having that memory. Because I think a lot of times people want to suppress that emotion, that energy, and having to deal with that and understand myself took a long time. I want to tell my story because a lot of people in the community, especially the black community, we all go through this. Be it a close relative, it doesn't have to be your direct parent, but a close relative. And it's okay to lose someone and understand that there's a way to heal. There's a way to recognize emotions and never forget the memories. This episode was mixed and mastered by Miles Dotson. I just felt like it was important to like share the story. I felt it necessary to share this story. One of my story is to say we need to bring back ass whoopings. They can save. So the life. reason I'm sharing this story is because I encourage you to be real with yourself when these things hurt you. But always remember to take your power back. Figure out a way to be better, and then let stuff go. I learned my lesson in riding the wave, and you know, once you get lost and you find your way, then you can be one of those heroes in your book. If books. it was this tough for me, after having all these positive experiences, to break this programming, how hard is it for the brother who, who doesn't have those experiences? And admitting as full of magic black women have, we still break. We still can be strong and still be weak. And it's time that as black people, we acknowledge that. So thank you for sharing my story. Share your story on the next season of You Had Me at Black. To learn more, go to youhadmeatblack.com slash own. Purposely Awakened is our national media sponsor. Their publication launched in the summer of 2016 to bring awareness to issues affecting the black community and to promote black businesses, campaigns, and movements. They fulfill their mission and purpose with socially conscious images, apparel, and content that promotes positive change within the black community. You can find them at purposelyawakened.com and connect with them at Purposely Awakened on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Tribe Chicago is our Chicago media sponsor. 
The Tribe is a digital media platform showcasing innovative content to reshape the narrative of Black millennials in Chicago. Their original works in journalism, documentary, and creative writing capture the multifaceted essence of Black Chicago from our point of view. As an independent alternative news source, they unify Black Chicago millennials in the common purpose to create a safer, more vibrant Chicago. You can find them at thetribe.com, that's T-R-I-I-B-E, or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thanks for listening to You Had Me at Black. If you want to hear more stories like this one, leave a review. You're listening to You Had Me at Black.